Good morning, everybody. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for us. We thank you, Father, for the good news of his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven, where he's seated at your right hand. We thank you for the simplicity of salvation, which is a matter of faith in Christ. By your grace, you save us, and by faith is the channel through which we are receiving that grace. We, we ask you, Father, this morning also to help us to understand the things that we'll be studying in your word today. And most importantly, Father, that we would take them to heart and help that to change and deepen our love for you and your son and for one another. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. It's good to be together, more and more people. And I know that's why I gave you a couple of extra minutes this morning, because people were talking, and I think that's great. Let's, uh, let's begin this morning with a couple of announcements. Grace Bible Church Pakistan, that's the missionary organization that we're uh, featuring this month. Many of you know Fazl John and Carrie. Um, they, uh, I mention this a lot when, I, when they're being featured, but uh, their, their mission keeps growing. Um, they have many ministries, as I've told you before. They have a, um, a lot of things with children, with a school and a, um, an orphanage and so forth. There are always needs coming up. There are always uh, orphans that need to be sponsored, for example. And we do every year, if you remember, um, they have a fun drive to, to, to pay for gifts for the kids at Christmas time. Looking forward to that. Anyway, please keep them in prayer. Um, this is their website. Um, you can see that on the slide this morning. Also this morning, I want to let you know again about schedule uh, next, next this, actually, this Thursday through Sunday. I'm going to be in the great state of Arizona for a Bible conference, uh, Baram Ministries, Pastor Rory Clark. Because of that, we will not be having service. We won't have Bible study this Thursday, and we won't have service on Sunday. So... Um, so don't lose everything you've learned in the next week, you know what I'm saying? You won't. Don't worry about that. Um, that's the only downside to traveling is that we, you know, especially now I'm hoping and praying that perhaps the Lord will give us a sort of a second-hand man here so that when I leave, you know, I had Steve Pomeroy, and he was wonderful about it. And, of course, uh, he's now with the Lord. So um, we'll see what the Lord has in store for that. But in any event, I want to mention that with respect to that, um, that uh, Barah Ministries has a live feed like we do, okay? And so you can, in other words, you can see the conference, hear the conference lessons. Um, they're Friday night at 7, um, Saturday morning at 8, or 9, I think 8, and then Sunday at 8. So if you want to, you can go on that. Basically, you go on their website, and then there's, I'll show it to you. Um, it's easier, like you don't have to copy down that necessarily. You can Google Baram Ministries. The hardest thing is how to spell it. B-A-R-A-H. But the website's pretty straightforward. BaramMinistries.com. And then up at the top, when you get there, the second menu item is live. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, so anyway, just, just to throw that out in case some of you would like to hear what's going on in the messages and so forth at that conference. Um, 
and that's where I'll be. So that's where I'll be teaching. And if you want to hear what I'm teaching, then you can go on those on that site and, and get it live. All right, this morning we continue in the Gospel of John. We're going to be starting in John chapter 3, verse 9. John chapter 3, verse 9 today. So if you would turn there now, John chapter 3, verse 9. Title of today's message, perhaps the most uh, popular and important message in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world. I believe that more people have been saved on the basis of this scripture, John 3.16, than perhaps any other. And so that's going to be our title for this morning. Um, we're going to see how, remember we've been, we've been looking at Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus at night. And we saw how Jesus kept turning towards the one thing that mattered, which was that you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom. All right. So Nicodemus was incredulous at that, if you remember. And then Jesus was um, couldn't believe that he, as a teacher of Israel, didn't know. And we went back to the book of Ezekiel to show you some passages that should have Nicodemus should have been contemplating um, with regard to that subject of being born of water and the Spirit. Today, again, we we pick things up at John chapter three. We're going to start in verse nine this morning. John chapter three, verse nine. And I will read the passage, and then we will get busy on what it's all about. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Those things, again, were being born from above by the Spirit and the water. How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know And testify about what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things, and I have, and you do not believe those, how will you possibly believe if I tell you the heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but has eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. He sent him into the world that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God, having been produced by God. Last Sunday, we listened to that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus told an astonished Nicodemus that no one can enter the kingdom, the promised kingdom, the descendant of David who would be on the throne forever in Jerusalem. No one can enter that kingdom 
without being born again from above by the Spirit. Jesus rebuked him when he did not understand. He wondered, as we saw, how a teacher of Israel, who was, his job was to be steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures, how could he be ignorant of these things? I was talking to my friend Pastor Rory this week, and he brought out something that um, I hadn't noticed, but it's true. You see, the Pharisees, of which Nicodemus was one, were experts on the law. See, they wanted to tell everybody what they should do and shouldn't do, so they knew the first five books of the Bible really, really well, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. However, they weren't so good anymore on the prophets. And you see, it was the prophets that talked about the need to be born, as we saw, of water in the Spirit. We saw that in Ezekiel, how before the, the remnant of Israel is going to be brought into the kingdom, that he would bring them literally from the dead in most cases, because most of the people that are going in will be resurrected Old Testament saints. And uh, the martyrs during the tribulation period. And they would be born again, born from above, through water and the Spirit. The healing waters and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where we pick things up today. Back in verse 11 now. 3.11. Truly, truly. Remember, that's an expression that says, pay attention. This is important, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And we testify of what we have seen, and yet you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and I have, and you do not believe and you don't, how will you possibly believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know, God has so much that he wants to reveal to his people. He's re- he wanted so much for the nation of Israel to know who he was, that they would understand and know him. Same thing in the, in the church age. Same thing in, when Jesus Christ was walking on the earth and preaching. There are things that the Lord wants to reveal to his people, to the people. And what he does is he always provides reliable witnesses who can testify to the things that God wants to reveal to his people. Let me say that again. God always provides reliable witnesses Credible witnesses, witnesses who have heard and have seen the things that the Lord has now asked them to tell the people about. For example, John the Baptist, he had baptized the Lord and had seen the Spirit descending on him and remaining. And the Father said, that's the one, that's the promised one, the coming Messiah. He saw that, he understood it, all right? They always, there's always at least one witness. There were many witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of them went on to preach and then even write letters in the New Testament about what they'd seen. They testified to the things that they'd seen and the things that they knew. God always does that. Always provides reliable witnesses who can testify to the things that God wants to reveal to the people. As a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there was a witness in your life. And that witness told you and testified about the things that God wanted you to know about his son and about the death of his son and the resurrection of his son and the simplicity of salvation. There was a reliable witness who came to you with that information. Whoever that might be. It might have been a family member. It might have been a friend. You might have been at a rally where, where, where an evangelist was preaching. But in any event, there was a reliable witness who told you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the tragedy. God always provides these reliable witnesses, but most reject the testimony of those witnesses. And that's 
always been true if you go back throughout the Old Testament. You know, we're going to look a little bit today at Moses and his relationship with the people as the representative of God, as the reliable witness. And time and time again, most, if not all, of his, the ones that he was leading through the desert rejected his message again and again and again. I mean, they built the golden calf when they should have been worshiping the Lord. They complained about food from heaven. So again and again and again, they kept rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. And that goes on throughout the Old Testament. We're in the book of Isaiah on our Thursday evening Bible study. It's the same story. Isaiah was preaching to the people of Judah, and he's telling them that you have to turn away from your reliance on these foreign nations and their militaries and just trust the Lord. But they wouldn't do it. Again and again and again. When Jesus walked the earth, he was preaching. He was God in the flesh. He was the most reliable witness of all time, and yet most rejected him. Today, when there are preachers, they're preaching the gospel, when there are missionaries that go out, when there are people who have had friends in their lives that they've been witnessing to for years, unfortunately, most reject the message. They reject the testimony of these witnesses. I want you to keep that in mind because that's going to explain something that we're going to see at the end of our message this morning. Most rejected the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. Pharisees sure did. And most rejected the testimony of Jesus about himself, that he came from the Father, that he and the Father were one, that he was the primus Messiah, he is the Son of God. And therefore they rejected the testimony that God the Father gave about his only Son and the testimony of the Spirit about Jesus as well. Now in our passage today, Jesus speaks of this and that. I mean, literally, this and that. He contrasts one to the other. We've already seen that earlier when he contrasted being born of the flesh with being born of the spirit. We're going to see more of that today. He's going to compare things. And in a couple of cases, he's going to talk about things as opposites. As opposites, like light and darkness. He begins with a contrast. He contrasts earthly things with heavenly things. We've seen that already. Earthly things and heavenly things. Until this moment, that's recorded in verse 11, Jesus has been teaching Nicodemus about earthly things. Then he's going to move on today, and he's going to start talking about heavenly things. He knows full well that a man who cannot believe the earthly things certainly won't understand the heavenly ones. Well, what are the earthly things that he was making reference to here? Remember, context is going to give you the answers. When you have a question, all right, so all you got to do is back up a few verses and just look at what he's been teaching so far. Those are the earthly things. In the same way, we're going to ask the question, well, what are the heavenly things? And the answer is going to be the things that he'll be teaching next. It's really straightforward once you break it down. So what are the earthly things? Well, let me give you a couple of the big ones that he was teaching Nicodemus about. One is the kingdom. He's talking about an earthly kingdom, a kingdom that will be established on earth one day. A kingdom that will be centered in Jerusalem, that there will be one king over all the world, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an earthly event. The Jewish people are God's earthly people. Every promise that the Lord is going to fulfill in the future to the remnant of Israel has to do with earth. It has to do with the kingdom on earth. It has to do with land on earth that the Lord has promised all the way back to Abraham that he would one day give the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's earthly. 
by the way, people who are born again from above are also on the earth. It's an, now, it's not, now, being born from above certainly has a heavenly element to it, but he's talking about something that happens to people here on earth. Those are the earthly things. He would talk about the flesh. He would talk about water. And he'd talk about the wind. And those are all earthly things. He was trying. As, see, that's, that's usually how the Lord Jesus Christ would teach, you know. You know about the parables, right? The parables are the exact same thing. He would always begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like something earthly that they would already understand. How the, how the grain grows and how the kings have banquets and earthly things that they already should have understood. And then he says, now in the same way as you see that, now I'm going to teach you about something you haven't seen yet. That's how he taught so, so often. So what are the heavenly things? He says, if you, don't, if you don't believe the earthly things, how are you going to believe the heavenly things? They're things that we'll see today that the Lord will speak of. Here are some of them. That's the question. Where are the heavenly things? What are the heavenly things? One of them is the Son of Man who descended from heaven. That the Son of Man, we're going to see that title. It's a tremendously important title. We're going to see why, okay? But that person, by the way, that's God in the flesh. That's the Word who always existed with God and was God, okay? He would descend from heaven. That's a heavenly reality, you see? That's a heavenly reality. What else? He's going to talk about glory. He's going to talk about the glory of the Son and the Father. The glory which they had together before the world was. Talk about a heavenly thing. There, there was, this was going on before there was an earth. So it couldn't possibly have been an earthly thing. It was a heavenly thing. Eternal life is ultimately a heavenly thing. Yes, it begins on earth, but it is the very life of God. It is a supreme quality of life. It comes from heaven. It is heavenly. Jesus is the uniquely born Son of God. That's heavenly. God in heaven sending his Son into the world from heaven. That's a heavenly thing. These are all things, by the way, that Nicodemus and the Pharisees and the Jewish people couldn't possibly understand unless they could also see and understand the new birth. Now, the reason why they couldn't see the earthly things and what they really represented was because they didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. But if they didn't have eyes to see the earthly things, they certainly didn't have them to see the heavenly things. The light came into the world, but most of the men preferred the darkness rather than the light. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Now he's going he's to explain a little more about what are these earthly, uh, heavenly things that he's talking about? Notice John 3.13. No one has ascended into heaven. You see, he's going to talk about heavenly things that people who have been to heaven see. Now, who's been to heaven at this point? It's really only God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Those are the only reliable witness about these things that Jesus is about to teach. Notice John 3.13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is qualified to speak of heavenly things. That's the Lord Jesus. That title means something very significant. We're going to see that in a moment. He comes from heaven. See, no one has ascended into heaven, but Jesus comes from heaven. He descended from heaven, and he's the Son of Man. And therefore, the Son of Man is qualified 
reliable testimony. He can testify the things that he has seen and known because he comes from heaven. Make sense? Okay. Now, the Son of Man is a very, very significant title. I'd like you to turn now to the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. I'll give you a moment to find that. If you find Isaiah, keep going. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. All right. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Fascinating thing about the Bible. When they put together the the, the Bible books in the order in which we have them today, many times they would put them in order of size. Like literally the number of words. Like Isaiah has 66 chapters, for example. And then you had Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These are are large books. And then Daniel's shorter, much shorter. But what's interesting about that, and and, and actually amazing about that, is that they also, not only does it go in that order of size, but it also goes in chronological order. Isaiah looking forward to what's about to happen, well, in 100 years or so, to to the people of Judah the southern kingdom, when they will be overrun, the Jerusalem will be destroyed, and they'll all be placed in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah is right at the precipice of that. It's right before the event happens. And therefore, he is, it's very urgent now that he talks to the people, and he even sees at the end of his life the first, first batch, as it were, of, of, of people from Israel being taken into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel writes when they're in Babylon. Daniel writes when they're about to come out of Babylon. All right. So anyway, in any event, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. A vision. Daniel has apocalyptic visions. What does that mean? It means that he sees things in a way that is very descriptive in pictures. And it's about the future things. Book of Revelation is another one. Okay. Apocalyptic in nature. Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. That, by the way, he is God the Father, is the ancient of days. And was presented before the Father. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples... Nations and men of every language might serve him. This is a description of the kingdom on earth that's coming. And it is coming. And the Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come on the clouds of heaven and will have be given a dominion, a rulership, glory, and a kingdom. He's the ruler and he rules a kingdom in glory. And it will be for the whole world that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve him, might be subject to him as the king, the king of kings, the Lord, the Messiah. And notice his dominion is an everlasting dominion. In other words, it will go on forever. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 9, that this will be a kingdom that will go on forever. So in other words... These prophecies, again, were also things that Nicodemus should have known. He should have realized that when Jesus talked about himself as the Son of Man, he was referring to what Daniel saw in a vision. Again, verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
That whole, isn't it a, a, a marvelous and beyond imagination that Daniel, who lived, well, for us, 2,600 years ago, okay, in terms of the event, more, because it still hasn't happened yet, right? But he had this really clear vision of what would happen. It's amazing. Almost like the book of, Bible was, a book of the Bible was inspired, you know, by God or something. I mean, I it's amazing. Again and again and again, these things. But in any event, verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, all around the world, all peoples, might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He will rule forever. It will not pass away. That kingdom, and this is the only one that ever existed when it happens, is one that will not be destroyed. <laughs> Daniel was prophesying, uh, telling Nebuchadnezzar about his dreams. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over the, ho- the whole area. And it was a powerful king. And no one could ever imagine that this dynasty in Babylon would ever stop being a dynasty. And yet it was. Soon thereafter, as a matter of fact, the uh, Cyrus and the people of... Um, why do I forget that name now? It's, 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 uh, it's Iran today. They would come and they would wipe out the kingdom that people thought would never end. Same thing in Jesus' time. People couldn't even imagine the world without the Roman Empire. And yes, it was conquered. You see? All the, all the, peop- all the kingdoms made up by men and, and rulers and strength, strong people and militaries, they all pass away. They all are destroyed sooner or later. But this one will not. The Son of Man will come in the clouds to receive dominion, glory, and his kingdom. And that is exactly what what John describes in the book of Revelation as well. Well, the Son of Man, as I hope you see from the passage in Daniel, is the title for the Messiah. The chosen one. The one that Israel was looking forward to having. Their king, finally. All the promises that were given to Abraham and David and through the, through the new covenant of Jeremiah will all come to pass when this one, this Messiah, comes. He's already come. But they didn't recognize him. He will come again. And he will set up the kingdom. The New Testament word is the Christ. It means the same thing. When you see the Christ in the New Testament, that's the Messiah, as the Old Testament Hebrew would would call the Lord Jesus Christ. This title, the Son of Man, therefore, it links our Lord, God in the flesh, to his mission on earth. Everything that we saw in the book of Daniel is, is on earth. That kingdom, that dominion is an earthly kingdom and an earthly dominion. There are all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth, men of every language on earth. Therefore, this title, the Son of Man, links the Lord to his mission on earth. And he, by the way, uses this title for himself more than any other title. Over 80 times he uses it in the four Gospels. That's a lot of times. You say, why? Because he wanted everyone to understand who, who he was in his mission First of all, as the Messiah, all right, that, that would, that's an earthly mission. He, was, he came from heaven to earth to fulfill that mission. As our Savior, it's the same thing. You see, the Son of Man was crucified on earth. It was his earthly mission to die for the sins of the world. The Son of Man. You see, the title, Son of Man, emphasizes his humanity, as it makes sense. Just like the Son of God emphasizes his deity. It's pretty straightforward. I say that because a lot of, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on trying to make this more complicated than it really is. Son of man, 
the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly calling and mission. Son of God from all of eternity. Okay. You put those two together and you have the Lord Jesus Christ. The God in the flesh. The God-man. So again, though, this title, Son of Man, emphasizes his lowliness, his humanity. In Matthew 8.20, we're not going to turn there, but he talks about the fact that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head at night. He literally was homeless. That's what he's talking about. And he would, sneak, he would be brought down to more humiliation when he was beaten and, and, and whipped and went to the cross and died. That's lowly. He submitted to that for us. You see, that's the Son of Man. In his humanity. It also points to his suffering and death. As I just alluded to. When he says the son of man. That connects to the fact that the Lord is going to die for us. He's going to suffer for us. As in his humanity. In his humanity. He was born of a woman. He, he had all of the experiences of what it means to be in a human body. Except to sin. And so he knew all about sorrow. He knew all about tears. He also knew about happiness. He knew about about, uh, strength and weakness. He knew about the fact of how painful what he had to go through would be. All of that. His suffering and his death. The Son of Man. And then, as we've already seen today in Daniel, his future reign as king. And that's in Matthew 24, 27. You can write these down and read them later if you wish. The Son of Man. Very significant title. It's an earthly thing, the title itself. Of course, it's a heavenly thing as well because it's talking about God, his only son. All right, let's go back to John chapter 3 now. We'll pick it up in verse 14. John chapter 3, 14. Son of man descended from heaven. He's qualified to to talk about heavenly things. The Son of Man points to the fact that He is the Messiah, the Christ, and that He would come and suffer for our sake. And that one day He will have a kingdom and a dominion that will rule, will rule over the whole earth. Now in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is going to talk about another earthly thing, but He's going to use it to teach about a heavenly thing. It's a comparison. He's going to say, He's going to talk about something that he knows Nicodemus would know about because it's in the first five books of the Bible. It's actually in the book of Numbers. We're going to see that. He's going to talk about an earthly thing. It happened in history with Moses and the, and the people of Israel in the wilderness before they came to the promised land. It was historical. It definitely happened on earth. It happened in a wilderness, in a desert. Okay? There was actually serpents on the ground. We'll get into that. But let's look at John chapter 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. I have to think that after all the misunderstanding, Jesus was saying, listen, i got to say something this guy's going to know about. Right? So he uses the title of the person, Moses. Right? If there's anybody that, somebody who is an expert on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If there's anybody, it would be Moses. Right? So he couldn't miss it. He knew he'd hit the mark when he said, look, let's talk about Moses now. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Hmm. Even so, in other words, what he was doing when he lifted it, we'll see that this was a bronze serpent that was made. Okay, we'll see more about that in just a moment. We're going to go to the book of Numbers. He's going to say in the same way that that serpent was lifted up 
in the wilderness for, for the same purpose, although on an earthly way, as Jesus Christ will be lifted up on the cross and then lifted up in glory, in the same manner, there will be a heavenly life that will be provided. In any event, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, must, had to happen. God's will, God's plan must be lifted up, had to go to the cross. So that whoever believes, here we are, will have eternal life in him. That's why he had to be lifted up on the cross. So that whoever believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will have eternal, eternal life in him. The people in the desert were never promised eternal life. The Lord, the Lord came through for them on earth and gave them a new lease on their earthly life. We'll see that. Now, and again, Nicodemus as a Pharisee, an expert on the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus uses a story now from one of the first five books of the Bible, the book of Numbers, to teach Nicodemus and everybody else about faith and life and the relationship between faith and life. Please turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Book of Numbers, chapter 21. This is the reference. When, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he's talking about what happened in, no, in, in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. Numbers 21, 4. It happened to the rebellious Jews in the wilderness. It pictured what's true of the whole human race. The whole human race. Numbers 21.4 Then they set out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. Has that happened to you? Have you ever at some point in the journey of God's plan for your life in, in walking in the deeds that the Lord has prepared for you, that you become impatient? That's not happening fast enough? Why can't I get to the end of the journey now? I know the Lord has promised me something. I want it now, okay? They were impatient because of the journey. But you know something? The journey is absolutely necessary to, among other things, mature us, temper us, go through things. Anybody who has understanding of wisdom from the Lord got it. You know, not just from the studying the word, but living it and going through the things that the Lord said you would go through. You know, for every believer in Christ, he says it, you, it's not only been granted to you to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that's part of the journey. But the, but the people in, in the wilderness didn't like that part. They became impatient. Not only that, look at verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses. Think about that. God and Moses. Well, what's, well, in other words, Moses, of course, was the spokesperson for God. And, and, and the Lord would tell him when they rejected him, he, he said, listen, they're not rejecting you, Moses. They're rejecting me. That's a very serious thing here. I'll show you how serious. Okay, so in other words, let's see it again. The, the people, verse 5, spoke against God and Moses. What did they say against God and Moses? Why have you brought us out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness. Why have you brought us out of the, out of the, out of the 
place of slavery. We were all in a place of slavery before we heard the gospel and were brought out of it. And yet there are times when people are saying, boy, I wonder if my life was better. I think it was before I became a believer. Huh? Have you ever said that? It's okay. But again, what, what, what is being illustrated here about the people of Israel applies to everybody in the world. Everybody in the world, okay, has been bit by the serpent. Only it's not talking about in a wilderness. It is, of course, talking about the serpent of old, the devil. We've all been born, as a matter of fact, in trespasses and sins. Okay. So let's, let's keep reading. The people spoke against God and Moses, and they said this, Why have you brought us out of Egypt? Egypt, the place of darkness, the place of sin, place of death, place of captivity. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. By the way, it's interesting. How can you say, think about the illogic. That's one of the things when we rebel against God, we get totally irrational. Notice what they said. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Wait a minute, I thought you said there was no food. See how it works? Because the miserable food was food from heaven. Think of it. See, there's an element of stubborn, uh, uh, sinful uh, rejection here that goes way beyond what we would consider to be normal reactions. Think about it, right? They were God's chosen people. You know, he, was, he brought them out of Egypt, become slaves to become free. They don't, they don't trust him. They don't trust him to come through for them. They didn't have faith. Just like the book of Hebrews talks about that. That you have to have faith. You have to mix the promises with faith. He says, they say, listen, there's no food and no water. And there's times in our walk. Again, I want you to think about this as a spiritual thing, right? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And yet people will say, you know what? The word, it's not really, I can't relate to it anymore. It's not helping me and so forth, right? There's no food and no water. It's just saying that, look, the Lord promised to take care of us, but I don't think he really is. How, How insulting, by the way, to a Lord that would, no, they didn't, they didn't know these things yet. In the desert, but the Lord, they did know, and the Lord had miraculously taken them out of Egypt, miraculously, that, that there, would, there would be the angel of death that would wipe out the firstborn in all of Egypt, but because of the blood on the doorposts, it wouldn't wipe out the firstborn of the people, of the Hebrews. They weren't the nation yet. When they also saw him part the Red Sea. I want you to picture that. It's not the same thing, but I want you to think about going into the ocean today. It's only a mile away, right? And having to get to Cuba. I don't know if even the geography works. No, the Bahamas. It's closer. And you got to get to the Bahamas, right? And there's an army behind you that's about to wipe you out. And you're like, wait a minute, Lord, you brought me here to die? And then all of a sudden, Moses, well, Moses isn't here anymore. Uh, I don't know who that would be, but not me. But all of a sudden, in any event, the Lord parted the ocean. And you could walk through the ocean with the water churning and the waves on either side of you. And you're totally safe. You're totally dry. And he gets you all the way there to your vacation in the Bahamas. That's what happened. They saw this. I want you to think about that. They saw that. I mean, what, think about it. what's What was more difficult 
in an earthly way now, to do. To part the Red Sea or to get somebody some food and water. What's more difficult? Part the Red Sea. <laughs> they already seen that. They knew why. Because they were his people. He promised that he would get them through. They know they were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were promised to be a nation. It was all promised. They should have trusted him. They didn't. There's no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. What happened next? Look, verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. In other words, there are times when the Lord will deal with his people and it won't be pretty. Now, he's talking about Israel, okay? That is not, that is, this is not the same kind of thing that will happen to the church. In fact, it, has, it really doesn't have to do with the church. It has to do with the nations, but there's a principle here. The Lord sent fiery serpents. Now, would he do it because all of a sudden he hated his people? No. He realized how dangerous it was for them to be complaining and speaking against him and, and, and not trusting him. And so he did this as a manner of having those who wouldn't die trust him. Let's see what happens. All right, verse 7. So the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. They weren't saying that when they were complaining. They were only saying that when the serpent showed up. We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Aha, things are a little different now. They were complaining against God. They were complaining against Moses. They didn't believe the the witness of, of Moses, the testimony of Moses about the Lord. They rejected all of that. However, now, when they're in a situation of life and death... All of a sudden, none of that mattered anymore. And they realized the truth, which was Moses was God's man. And if they were going to get the message to the Lord, it had to go through Moses. And they needed the Lord desperately. That happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? Don't don't we go periods in our life where we kind of go merrily on our way and we don't really think as much as we should about the things of God, the things of the Lord, the things above for us, because we're his heavenly people. But then when something serious And life and death happens. Sometimes that will trigger our ability once more to go to him and ask him what we need. We should be, by the way, praying all the time, right? Pray without ceasing. But let's face it, as human beings, there's something, I've seen it again and again in my own life and the life of other people. Only sometimes when something bad happens do people once again get in that habit of praying, okay? It's too bad, but let's be real, okay? So he says, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And and Moses interceded for the people. Now, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. By the way, this is a play on words. The fiery serpents were the ones that that were killing them. And now the fiery serpent here is made of bronze. Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a standard, a high pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten on that ground, when he looks at the serpent that's been raised up, he will live. Does it say when, when, they, when they do something of their own in order to get, does it say when the medic comes out and they will live? What does it say? When he looks at it. So many people want to put works in the picture, right? 
So many people want to define faith as a commitment and, and, and define it as you're now saying you're promising things to God. No. Look. Look at the one who was raised on the cross and then raised into heaven. When he looks at it, he will live. In other words, the Lord always provides redemption for his people. Always provides a way out. Always provides a way that leads to life. But you have to look. You have to look. That's it, though. Verse 9, Moses did it. And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, he looked to the bronze serpent, and he lived. Was there power in the bronze serpent? Was it like the other things that they built, the idols that they built, where they thought there was some power there? Was there? No. What was the only thing that mattered? Where did all the power come from? It came from the Lord, uh, and it was faith alone that, that the Lord was looking for in his people. That was the whole purpose. He saw their unbelief, and he said, that can't continue. That's way more important than even whether they have physical life or death. That they believe, okay? And so he did what he had to, and the people did believe, and they just did it by looking at the serpent. Not that there's anything in the serpent. I say that because later on, guess what? Later on, the people of Israel would start making an idol. Uh, They thought that the bronze serpent was who they had to go to. And they forgot about the Lord again, and he had the king, Hezekiah, destroy it. God is always in the business of destroying our idols. Okay. As Moses lifted up the serpent, okay, Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And let me say, the serpent has bit all of us. What do we have to do to live? Look to the bronze serpent. Only now, it's the Lord Jesus who's raised up on the standard Raised up on the cross. By the way, the Bible makes a point of saying that it was a public event. Why is that important? Because it it says that this is something for everybody to see and understand and know. If not themselves, through witnesses. By the way, you know the only uh, disciple, male disciple, who actually witnessed it firsthand? Looked into the Lord's eyes when he was suffering on the cross? You know who it was? It was John. It was the writer of this gospel. See, he was a credible witness. Always our witnesses. So that whoever believes, that's what he's saying, whoever looks to the bronze serpent, he lived. So fiery serpents were biting the people and they were dying. And the Lord told Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it up on a standard, a long pole. It was a pole they would use to have their flags waving when they went into battle. Everyone could see it. Okay, that was the point. Okay. They thought the snake bite was a death sentence. That was a reasonable thought to have. After all, people were dropping like flies. They thought it was a death sentence. In other words, they thought the bite was it. It's over. My life is over. However, one look of faith is all it took. One look of faith. Here, the serpent on the standard. God gave them new life. They thought their life was over. They looked and believed in God, and they gave him a new life. Earthly life, by the way. This all happened on earth. This is a story about a physical object and a physical life. In other words, earthly things. So Jesus is going to use the earthly thing that finally, he's sure 
Nicodemus knows about in order to teach the heavenly things. Let's go back to John chapter 3, verse 14. Now that we've seen what he was referring to. John chapter 3, verse 14. Interesting, because Nicodemus was, was arguing with the Lord, so to speak, when he was talking about the earthly things. But, but, but Nicodemus is silent when he's talking about the heavenly things. It goes from a conversation to, as it were, a preaching, a monologue, just the Lord speaking to him. Has to get to that point. Right? So, like, like, the, like the people in the desert, they were talking back to God, right? arguing with him. Talking against them. And, that, and then, then something happened and now they have to just listen. All of us have to listen. All of us have to be realizing who he is. And we don't know. You know, our heart is deceitful. Um, we are weak. Right? Trust not. Right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. How, what, do you, what do you have to possibly say back to the Lord other than give him glory? Right? Certainly not to argue with him. Okay, John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Ah, now we know what that is. Even so, notice, from the earthly to the heavenly, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lifted up here is, is both is on the cross dying and his resurrection, by the way. Okay, the word can be used for both. So that whoever believes... Ha- will have eternal life in him. Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up on a cross. And then he was lifted up in glory. And all of us, all men, are born under a death sentence. Just like those who were bitten by the serpent were under a death sentence. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Do the heavenly things. Son of Man came down from heaven. When we believe we have eternal life, that's a life from heaven. Pictured by the earthly thing, but coming to fruition in its grandest way with the, with the appearance of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Let's continue. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that who, whoever believes in him, the Son, shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice something here. Notice that he's been talking about himself as the son of man. That had to do with his earthly mission, right? Earthly. Now he's going to talk about believing for eternal life. And now, who, how does he talk about himself? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the son of God. Notice that switch. That's not an accident. For God so loved the world that he gave his, God's only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Just like the serpent in the desert and the people thought they were perishing, but that one belief, that one look, and they won't perish. But instead they'll have life only here. It's eternal life. Isn't it marvelous? I mean, it's, it's not marvelous in the sense that the Lord had to suffer and die. But it's incredible that by that death, by his being raised up on the cross, whoever looks at him, in that sense, whoever believes in him, will receive eternal life. For God, notice 17, just as amazing. People get the wrong idea about God and Jesus and why he was sent. Unfortunately, 
I don't know why this is, but most people look at the Lord and they just think of him as being the ones judging him all, people all the time. And yet, notice what the truth is. Verse 17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Let's say that again. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Now, the world here is the world of unbelievers. If anybody should be judged, it's the world of unbelievers. I say that to you because we're all too prone as believers in Christ to judge the world. As a matter of fact, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time about people saying, well, you know what? There's all this wickedness and they're going to get theirs. Believe me, when the Lord comes back, man, he's going to judge them and condemn them. But that's not the heart of the Lord. That's not why he came. Notice, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Why? One reason, that the world might be saved through him. And by the way, as his witnesses today, we we should honor that. Our Lord did not come into the world to judge that world. Paul would say the same thing. He would say, listen, don't you be judging the people out there. You should be paying attention to the people in here, right? We've seen that there's so much going on in the church today that is, in 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 a way, more wicked. It's more wicked because we ought to know better. And yet we let all these ungodly worldly things, these false doctrines and everything else. And Paul said, that's what you guys should be concerning yourself with. You know, look at, the, look at the moat in your eye, not the splinter in your brother's eye. So in any event, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What is this telling us? I'll tell you what it's telling you. God loves all the people of the world. God loves all the people of the world. Next time you look at somebody and you're, and you're tempted to want to look down at them or say something bad about them or getting on your high horse and saying, I can't believe they're this bad or that bad. I can't believe about these, these people out there who are doing this and doing that. Guess what? God loves them. Loves them. In a love that we can never even imagine. Now, yes, he loves us in a very special way as his children. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't also love every person in the world. By the way, all of us started out as a person of the world. Did you know that? It's a good thing that God loves all the people of the world. Otherwise, he couldn't have loved you because you started out dead in your trespasses and sins. Every believer starts out as a person of the world. Let me show you that. Go to, please now go to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As we wrap things up this morning. Because <laughs> you don't know how long the wrapping will take. <laughs> all right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. God loves all the people of the world, and it's a good thing because every one of us started out as a person of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, he's talking to believers now. He's not pointing the finger at the world. He said, I didn't come to save the healthy, but the sick. You were also dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, lived, according to the course of this world. We all started out walking according to the course of this world. And it gets even worse. Look, according to the prince of the power of the air, we lived our lives before we believed in Christ according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. 
according to his way of wanting to run people's lives. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, unbelievers have help in their lifestyle. There's a spirit that is working in their lives. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the other side. It's the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's why this same book of Ephesians says our battle, our beef, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people. In other words, the next time you look at somebody who's involved in some serious sexual sin or whatever it might be out there, okay, don't say, uh, it's a, we're against that person. You should always say, we're against the spiritual forces of wickedness that actually are behind it. They're actually behind it. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, all, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, formerly indulged the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Good thing God loves all the people of the world, isn't it? Ah, but verse 4. We're going to see the, the, the serpent now, the bronze serpent on the standard. Look and live. Notice. But God being rich in mercy for all of us because of his great love. That's the motive. That's what we saw in John 3.16. Every time we say it, God so loved the world. You see? Because of his great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive like the people bit by the serpent. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Don't give yourself any credit. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with with God. He raised us up with him. And he seated us with God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How kind is that? How kind is it to take your, your mortal enemy... That we were dead. We were living according to the thinking of Satan. And yet he, because he loved us so much. And he has so much mercy. He said, I'm going to make them alive. And not only that. I'm going to raise us up to, him up to be with me. See, the heavenly now. Seated us with the God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come. He's looking out forever now for us, the heavenly people. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's grace, so that whoever believes in him, that's faith, will never perish but have eternal life. Again, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, do you think anybody that day in the desert was boasting? Right? They were boasting. They said, hey, uh, uh, listen, I, I really went out of my way to get bit by that serpent because I, you know, I knew that I was going to be okay. No, they weren't boasting. They were just so grateful because it was all the doing of the Lord, not them. And then verse 10. Never leave out verse 10. People like to leave out verse 10 because it, it's talking about now the life they were called to live. But we are his workmanship now. We are all his workmanship. We are, all, we are all called to do the works that he's ordained for us. Notice, we are his workmanship now. We are created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, 
for good works, which God prepared. He did even that beforehand so that we would walk in them. How gracious is that? He says, listen, you could never fulfill the law. You, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm, I made you alive. And not only that, I've given you the spirit so that now you can walk in the very things that it was impossible for you to walk in before. And I'm giving them to you. It's all grace. God sent his son into this world for one reason, one motive, love. God loves every person and he's not willing that any should perish. Any. Think about that. Not one. God had one purpose. One motive, love. One purpose, to save the world. <laughs> Every human being. That's his purpose. Think about it. He, you know, the, the, the difficulty with that, of course, is that we know that not everybody is saved. But the, put that away. That's got something to do with something terrible about humans. Okay, it's nothing to do with God. His purpose in sending Jesus was to save the world. Every human being. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's in the Gospel of John. You are the Savior of the world. All men and women, especially of believers. See, that's the key to understand that. That makes it crystal clear, by the way, that passage in 1 Timothy. He's the Savior of the world, especially believers. You see it? He's the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice who takes away our sins and the sins of the world. And therefore, it was never God's intention that anyone be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Nevertheless, it will happen. It will happen to whoever does not believe in his son. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. Oh, that's right. You were in Ephesians. I've got to give you a moment to get back to John. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 18. John 3, 18. John 3, 18. He who believes in Christ is not judged. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who does not believe has been judged already. See, a lot of people think about the judgment, and they think about the judgment in the future, in the, in the, in the uh, Lord's uh, throne, and so forth. But this says they've been judged already. Hmm. Now think about it. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save it. But these people have been judged already. What does that mean? It means, well, it says it right there, it does not believe. In other words, they've decided to be kept in the place of judgment by not believing because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That Israelite in the desert who was bitten by a serpent was under the death sentence from the moment that snake struck. But he didn't have to remain there. He could look and live. Unfortunately, the vast majority of human beings never pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. Why? Because they refuse to look. They refuse to believe. It's the simplest thing. I want you to think about that. I want you to just, really, it's a great picture. You think about being in a desert, being bit by a snake. I'm going to die. There's no way out. And then somebody says, all you've got to do is look at something. And you're going to be fine. It's that simple. 
That, that's the gospel, though. Believe, believe, believe. But unfortunately, most people refuse to do it. Now, notice what they're refusing. It's right up there with what was going on with, with the people and Moses and the Lord because they're refusing God. They're refusing the Lord's love. They refuse to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're not rejecting some carpenter's son. They're rejecting the Son of God. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the seriousness of that. I want you to think about the perversity of our human nature. That we would do that. That we would have a God who loves us infinitely and gave us his son to die for us. And we just say, I don't want to know that. I don't want to believe in that. They despise the love of God. It was on display in the death of his son. That's really God's motive. They, they, don't, they despise it. They turn away from it. They do this. They, they say, I refuse to believe. They're like this. <laughs> It's the opposite of looking, right? It's looking away and pushing aside. I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want anything to do with them. They want nothing to do with the love of God. And guess what? God's going to let them have their way. That's the judgment. In other words, they really judge themselves. <laughs> they judge themselves. They said, I, I'm not the kind of person that will ever submit to the love of God through the death of Christ. I'm just not going to do it. Okay, fine. But you see, you're, put, you're keeping yourself in the place of death. In other words, you just judge yourself. God doesn't have to do it. He would say later on that I won't judge you. Moses will judge you. Isn't that interesting? Because Moses was the one who got the serpent and got the people. And, you know, and so he understood the importance of faith. And these people don't believe. Nothing to do with the love of God. They don't want it. So God lets them have their way. All right, so we're going to pick up, that's it this morning. We're going to pick up next two weeks from now, and we'll be here next Sunday, uh, in verse 19. We're going to see him describe the judgment in some more detail. And he's going to do it in terms of light and darkness, two opposites. Okay, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you uh, for uh, your grace to allow us the patience today to hear from your word in, 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 a, in, a, in a pretty full way. We, we also, Father, today would want to make sure that every one of us knows exactly what the gospel is, the message, that your son was made flesh, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, that he died for us and for the sins of the world, that he was buried and then he was raised from the dead by you, Father, on the third day, so that whoever believes in him will never perish but has eternal life. For God, you did not send your son to judge the world but to save it. Father, we also want to pray this morning for all of those, and there are many, who are going through a difficult time this morning. A lot of health issues we have right now, a lot of relationship issues, financial problems, Father. We bring them all to you. You know about them, but we pray for those, our people now. Father, we also pray for um, all of us to be able to retain what was in the gospel message today and retain the principles that are in John chapter 3 because they are life-changing. When we understand them properly, we can have a, the proper way of communicating to people the depth of your love through the death of your Son. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. If you have any questions about today's message or the gospel or anything else, just send me an email, although I am behind on one particular email because it was actually a four-part question, which I think is cheating. <laughs> but you can email me with any questions you have.
And just as a reminder for those of you that are visiting, um, our giving policy is to not to, in any way, compel you to give. All right, so we won't have any drives. We don't believe in tithing. We don't even pass a basket around, okay? Because there's a certain element of compulsion, right? You're there and the basket goes by and you have this, you're very self-conscious and you're like, well, I just got to put something in there now. People look, people judge me. That's not, by the way, God wants it for the church. <laughs> just check out 2 Corinthians verses chapters 8 and 9. You'll see. You'll see. He wants it to be a freely chosen thing to do out of gratitude for the Lord. And, you know, you look at it now and you say there's, uh, there's so many ways in which we've been blessed. And so it's, that's out of our heart, out of gratitude, out of a genuine love for other people. That's the motivation. All right. So I leave you with that. I leave that with you and the Lord. All right. Father, again, we want to thank you today. We thank you for everybody who's here. We thank you for your, your provision for all of us and your protection. And we pray especially for those, especially who can't be here, um, even though they would like to be because of things that they're going through. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. I heard a funny buzzer. I don't know what that is. I'm thinking maybe it's the equivalent of the hook. You know what I'm saying? Your time to answer the question is over. Anyway, have a great one.